Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Ridge Church. Wherever you're tuning in from, wherever you're listening from, and wherever you're at today, I want to welcome you to our church. We're glad that you've joined us. My name's Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at Ridge Church, and I don't know about you, but through this season, it's Christmas season, which means we're getting ready to go and spend time with family. My wife, Jaleesa, and I moved to Maple Ridge a few years ago, and it's definitely our home now. Um, But right now, we're planning what we'll do kind of after Christmas Eve services here at the church, which we're so excited for, going and visiting and being with family. And if you were around last week, you get to hear Jonathan, our lead pastor, talk a little bit about this series and what we're doing and why we're talking about it, because our families have some realities to them, don't they? Um, My mom affectionately refers to our family, not as a family tree, but a family bush. Um, Recently, my grandmother, my my grandma Marina passed away. She's now with Jesus, which I'm so grateful for and excited for. And and during her sickness, before she passed away, I got to spend some time with her. But beyond time with her, I got to spend some time asking dear friends and people around us to pray for my grandma. And because she's my grandma, and that's what I call her, people would ask me this question. Um, Is she your mom's mom or your dad's mom? It's a very fair question, but my response was always the same. Well, it's a little bit complicated. See, my grandma Marina is my grandma. She's always been my grandma, but truly who she is um, was a friend of my mom's. My mom was a teacher. She taught with this woman named Marina who they became good friends. When my mom and my dad got together and got married, my dad's dad was looking to connect with someone in the Okanagan. He was looking to buy property and this, that, and the other thing. And so my mom gave my dad's dad her friend's phone number, then they were able to meet. So my mom's friend and my dad's dad meet, they fall in love, they get married, all that wonderful stuff. And so all of a sudden, my mom's friend becomes her husband's dad's wife and therefore her stepmom-in-law. It's a little bit confusing and it's not quite as straightforward as we wish a family tree might be. There's nothing wrong with that. I I love that story. I love explaining a little bit of the context of my family. And maybe your family's like that too. Maybe you've got some realities in your family, some realities in your family tree or your family bush or your family blackberry thicket, whatever it might look like. And some of those might be awesome stories and fun to tell. And some of those might be not as fun to tell. Some of them might be a little more painful. Some of them might be something you don't really want to mention or don't really want people to know about. But as we saw last week and as we're going to continue to see in this series that we've been doing, if your family history is complicated, you find yourself in very good company. That's what our series is about this Advent season as we expect and anticipate the arrival of Jesus. That that these people that sit on the periphery of the story, that that people that might sit on the outside looking in, the, the people that would be unexpected are actually the very people that God's doing something in and doing something through. That God is drawing people on the outside to the very center of the story. 
And while we see in the genealogy or the list of Jesus's family tree, what we find in the beginning of Matthew's gospel is that he does actually have some strange branches sticking off that tree. And we read it last week, but I want to read again, just starting in the gospel of Matthew verse one and carrying on. Here's what it says. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Sarah by Tamar. We talked about that last week. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Rahab is who we're going to talk about today because she finds herself mentioned in the family tree of Jesus in a seemingly strange way. It's actually quite odd that Matthew would bother to include her in his list of Jesus's family. But before we talk about exactly why she's there, it's important that we understand what a genealogy even is in the first place. I mean, sure, it's interesting information, but ultimately, if we're honest, who cares? right? (laughs) I remember being young and doing my first ever year through the Bible or some kind of Bible study plan and being a new Christian and, and like many of us, having a hard time walking through the scriptures and finding it a little bit overwhelming at times and hard to follow at times and, and challenging to spend that time and invest that time. And I remember being young and getting to these points in Bible reading plans where you read the chapter that's just a genealogy Right? And you guys know what I'm talking about, where it's like you get to that chapter and there's a part of you that's like, oh man, I don't know what I'm supposed to take from this. But there's also a part of you that if you're really, really honest, you're like, oh man, I'm mailing it in today. I'm skim reading this thing. I'm calling it a day. I can check it off the list. See, these genealogies are there and we realize that they're there and they're probably important. There's probably something to them. But, but what is the actual purpose of them? Well, for Matthew, there's a specific people that he's writing to at a specific time. Matthew's gospel, his account of Jesus's life is all about who Jesus is to the Israelite people, to the Jewish people. He, he's writing to that audience who, based on Old Testament prophecies, were expecting a Messiah where their history as a nation, their history as a people, their history as the family of God was incredibly important to him, them. Which is why Matthew forms how he writes and why he chooses to present the opening lines of the story he's telling about Jesus with these lines. It's why he begins it this way. See, the reality is Christ's family tree shows us a number of things about who Jesus is. First of all, it shows us his ancestry. Right? That's what a genealogy is. It's showing us who did Christ come from? What is his family tree? What's the history? And this is something that's actually important for us to know as Christians. Jesus is not a made up person. He's a real person that is quite easily and quite obviously found in the history of humanity. Whether you believe in Jesus as Lord or not, you cannot deny that he was a person that existed. And so we see this list, we see Jesus' ancestry, we see that he is a descendant of Abraham, that he is a descendant of King David. But we also see some other things. We also see his identity. See, we get to see his, who he is and how 
where he's come from has shaped who he is, but we also get to see his mission. We see these particularly in this first line, right? Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Firstly, Jesus Christ, he's a central figure of this story. This is our protagonist. This is our hero. This is who Matthew's writing about. But before he hops into the rest of the genealogy, he starts by calling Jesus two things. First of all, son of Abraham. And by calling Jesus the son of Abraham, what Matthew is connecting to Jesus is to the father of the people of Israel. By linking Jesus to Abraham, Matthew is bringing the reader's attention back to the promise. The promise of God's rescue plan for the world. He wants us to see that Jesus is the long-awaited son of Abraham who will bring God's blessing to all of humanity. He's trying to show us the mission of Jesus through his history. But he also points out that he's the son of David. And Matthew loves this phrasing, the son of David. This is the first of 10 uses of this phrase in Matthew's gospel account. This phrase points us to the reality that Jesus is royalty. And not in some vague metaphorical way, in a very literal way. He is the descendant of the kings of Israel. The author's goal can be seen by the fact that Jesus' ancestry is traced through David's son, King Solomon. In Luke, uh, the other gospel account about Jesus, it's, it's not traced through King Solomon, but rather through David's son, Nathan. But here in Matthew, he's not primarily concerned just about genetic lineage. He's actually concerned about establishing Jesus as the rightful heir, the rightful royal heir to the throne of the people of Israel. And, and all this makes sense, right? This is what Matthew's trying to communicate. He's connecting Jesus to his most famous relatives. He's connecting Jesus to the people you want to be connected to. And some of you may have parents or grandparents. Some of you may have uncles or aunts or, or siblings or whoever it may be that you want to be known as associated with. We can look at our family tree and start to go, that's the people. Those are the stories. Those are the things that I want to celebrate and I want people to know about. I remember when I was young and before I wanted to be in ministry, one of the thoughts I had was wanting to be a teacher. And so I was exploring this and, and I got to learn a little bit about my grandfather, who at one time was the minister of education in British Columbia. And I remember being so excited as this kind of middle schooler, teenager, to let people know that actually my grandpa held a really important role in the government of British Columbia. I was proud of it because everybody loves to name drop themselves, even though nobody really wants to hear it. Because they have labels. When people have labels that you want to be associated with, you want to mention it. Famous, powerful, rich, influential. And in the same way, Matthew is doing that with names like David and Abraham. Important to the story. David, a man after God's own heart, the king of Israel. Abraham, the father of God's people, the recipient of God's promises to the world. Those names make sense, but then you see the names that don't belong. Like Tamar, who we discussed last week or this week, Rahab. She's described in this story as the wife of Salmon and the mother of Boaz. And now Rahab is what you call a side character in the biblical story. Sure, she's in there and, and Matthew's original audience would have recognized the name, but not in a positive way. Because where we find Rahab's story is in the Old Testament book of Joshua. And that's what we'll explore a little bit today. 
See, in the book of Joshua, Joshua is this guy who has just become the leader of the Israelite people. Moses's death has just happened. And Joshua, after 40 years of the people wandering in the wilderness before they could go into the promised land, is about to cross over the Jordan River. He is the leader that is going to take the people into the God, God's promised land. And set up on one side of the river, we find ourselves at the beginning of the book of Joshua. Joshua knows he needs intel. He's a good leader and God's promised them this land, but there's currently people living in it. And and Israel has grown to be this large nation. Estimates, historians put around maybe a million people with women and children. And so Joshua's leading this nation. He looks at the land that God's promised and he realizes we need to go in there. And so God, or pardon me, Joshua sends out spies to scout out the situation so they could make a plan. And that's where Rahab comes in. Listen to how she's introduced in Joshua 2 verse 1. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go and view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and they lodged there. Do you hear that? Rahab was a prostitute. The way that we are introduced to her is by her vocation. A prostitute named Rahab. And we see these people in Jesus's family tree. Abraham, father of a nation. David, king of the people of God. Rahab, the sex worker? This doesn't make sense. To hear this name in Jesus's family tree would have shocked and created a ton of tension for any Jewish person hearing or reading what Matthew had written. And of course it would. Why would you include this? Like we know Rahab's story. We know what happened in her world. We know how God worked through her, but maybe don't put the prostitute's name in the family tree. It doesn't belong there. Let's just skip over it. Let's just bury that kind of stuff under the rug. Why would you include someone who's got this label on them? The very introduction of her is that she is a prostitute. Can we just talk about the heroes? Can we just talk about the winners and the kings and the fathers of the faith? And not only that, but her gender, she's a woman. Can we just stick to the guys? But, but there's something that God's saying that no, women have an important place in this story. Rahab, the woman who is a prostitute, who is not Jewish, she's a Canaanite. Nothing about her seems to fit the mold of who should be in the family tree of the king of Israel. And yet God places her there. Why? Because despite her label, we find that Rahab will play an important part in the Israelite people's story. As the spies go into the city of Jericho, it turns out that they are seen and and someone goes to the king of Jericho and lets the king know that some men from Israel have come in and they've been spotted and, and they went to Rahab, the prostitute's house. And so he sends guards over there and they knock on the door and, and Rahab comes to the door. And, and when they investigate and ask Rahab about them, Rahab covers for them. She says, true, these men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed to dark, the men went out. I don't know where they went, but pursue them quickly for you will overtake them. And so Rahab fools these guys, sends them out and hides the spies. And the story carries on. Joshua 2, 8, I want to read these words. It says, before the men lay down, Rahab came up to them on the roof and she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you this land. 
and that the fear of you has fallen upon us all, that the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings, the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God... He is God in the heavens and above the earth and on the earth beneath. See, Rahab, she's got little understanding, but she's heard the stories of the Israelite people. She's heard what their God is able to do. He's the God who splits seas. He's the God who gives victory to a slave people wandering in the wilderness over warring nations. She's got all this faith, but none of the understanding. She's got this great wonder at who this God is. And she can't even fully explain it, but there's something in her that goes, I don't fully get it, but I've heard what your God has done. And me and everyone in this city, we cannot deny what your God is doing and how he is working for you. And he is more powerful than our gods. The little statues we have, the idols, the the things that we may sacrifice us to, we're not seeing seas get split in half. We're not seeing people set free in the way that your God seems to set people free. I don't fully understand, but I know God is changing something. And maybe you know people like that. Maybe you are a person like that right now. Maybe you're new to the Christian faith or you're just exploring it. And you can't even quite put words to what you believe yet, but you're experiencing the power of God. Maybe someone's prayed for you and it's changed something. Maybe you've seen what God is doing in someone else's life. Maybe you're listening or hearing or watching this and you can see or identify the things that God is doing around you and and you can't quite put your finger on it, but there's something about this God. There's something about this God that is different than anything else. And the story continues in verse 12. Rahab's talking and she says, now then please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, that you will also deal kindly with me and my father's house. Give me a sign that you will save me and my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them. Deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, that when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. So she let them down by a rope through the window, helping them escape. For her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. So she was able to do exactly that. So they work out the terms of this agreement. They make this deal. Rahab hides the spies. The spies will protect Rahab when the Israelites come into the city. She gives them directions about how to get back. And there's this kind of sneaking story where the spies get all the way back and across the Jordan, back to their people, back to Joshua. And Rahab, she ties a scarlet rope from her window so that the Israelite people can identify her home when they return. And when they get back, they tell Joshua all about what they've been told. Then the two men return, the Bible tells us. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. They told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. They give this information and this information sends Joshua into motion. And everything gets ready and the people cross the Jordan in an amazing story in Joshua 3, 4, and 5. But then in Joshua 6, we see the story of the fall of Jericho. And you'll know it if you grew up going to Sunday school. 
Now Jericho was shut up inside, Joshua 6.1 tells us, and outside because of the people of Israel, because of their fear. None went out, none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, going around the city once. Do this for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets. When they make the long blast with the ram's horn and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout and the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. And Joshua and the people of Israel do what God has told them to do. And just as God said, when they blow the horn, when they raise up a great shout, the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. And no matter how many kids' songs or Sunday school lessons you have heard about it, the reality of this meant that it would have been chaos. Thousands of people, a city broken down. This would be absolute chaos, blood, a battle, fear, death, absolute chaos. Our minds and our modern Canadian thinking, we cannot even begin to process the intensity and chaotic nature of that moment. But in the midst of it, Joshua and his spies remember Rahab. Joshua 6.22. But the two men who had spied out the land and Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. And then skipping down to verse 25. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved them alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Now it's a classic Old Testament story, right? It's epic, it's riveting, it's unique. Pull out that flannel graph, get some kids songs going, get some actioneers ready. That's an epic, classic Sunday school story. But even still, should this woman be in Christ's family tree? A place in the Christmas story in some sense? To be counted among the names of Abraham and David and Jesus himself. That's a little much, isn't it? I love the way that story concludes and and it's written a long time before Christ, but I think the principle still applies. It says she lived, she's lived in Israel even to this day even with all her complications, even with all her sin, even with all the labels that had been placed on her, all the mess of her life, the love of God changes everything for Rahab through a simple and yet profound faith that causes her to act. And if we're honest with ourselves, our story isn't so dissimilar to Rahab's, is it? Because when we dig past those labels, when we dig past the labels that we have, The simple ones, what do you do for a job? Where do you live? Who are you married to? All these labels that we have when we dig past those things, we ourselves realize that we might be carrying our own labels that we know are there. No matter how much we wish they weren't, no matter how much we want to bury them, no matter how much we want to hide them, no matter how much we try to distance ourselves from it or numb ourselves to the reality of it. Here's my question for you. What label do you wear? Known or unknown, secret or public? And yeah, maybe you wear the label of the addict and your life has been marked by the things that you're addicted to. 
whether that's substances or activities that you shouldn't be involved with. Maybe your label is that you're a rageaholic. You're angry all the time. Nobody knows when you're going to fly off the handle at work or at home. Because one thing sets you off. And you've been labeled by that anger. Maybe you've been labeled by something else. Maybe you bear the label of the cheater, the fool, the failure, the liar. And sometimes these labels, we have placed them on ourselves through our own actions. Things that we've done, things that we continue to do, whether in public or in secret, but in our very core, we can feel how they're affecting our souls. You cannot live how you live and not have it impact your soul. These labels, they begin to shape us, but sometimes they're labels that we've received from others. Things that have been spoken over us, things that have been spoken to us, oftentimes by people in authority over us, parents or teachers or even pastors, bosses, sometimes intentionally and in a manipulative and abusive way, but sometimes without any ill intent. I remember when I was younger and just getting started in ministry, I was at a pastor's gathering. I was 21. I was young. I, I really was excited about this idea of becoming a pastor. And, and I was sitting in this group of a bunch of people and everyone was kind of young and we were all new to ministry and all these kind of things. And we we're chatting through kind of history. Where'd you come from? What's your story? All this kind of thing. And, and as we're chatting through, everyone starts talking about where their uh, dad was a pastor or where their dad was a missionary or where their parents served overseas or, or all these kinds of things. And I, and I remember talking about how, well, my mom's a teacher and my, my dad works in management for, for the natural gas line pump uh, company and, and they did this and they raised me this way and that kind of thing. And, and someone not ill-intentioned at all leaned over and said, man, you don't really fit around here, do you? You don't really fit. Your story doesn't match what it's supposed to be. And I remember in that moment feeling different. And like maybe he was right. Not ill-intentioned, but maybe he was right. Maybe I don't fit. Maybe that's the label that's on me is the, the guy who shouldn't really be a pastor. And maybe that that sits on me and, and I don't know what your story is. I don't know the words that have been spoken over you in your life. But I wonder if as you listen to this, there's a narrative. There's a narrative in your mind. Maybe it's a word. Maybe it's a phrase that's been spoken. Maybe it's a whole story that's been built around a label that's been placed on you. And maybe it's starting to feel heavy. Maybe someone's spoken over you and said, you're such an idiot. You'll never get it right. You'll always be a failure. Maybe someone's spoken over you, said you'll never break free of your addictions. You'll never deal with your sin. You're hopeless. Maybe you bear a label Maybe it's starting to crush you. Or maybe it's not crushing you anymore. You've just grown numb to it. You've given up on ever changing. You've given up on ever being something else. You've given up on growing or changing or being shaped into the image of Christ. And Rahab, well, we don't know much about it. We don't know much about her exact situation or her thoughts or her processes or whatever it may be. But we do know this, that the first thing that she is identified by is her brokenness is her sin, is her sexual sin. 
What a thing to be labeled by. What a thing to be identified by. But here's the beauty of the gospel. Rahab is no longer identified by those things, but by the grace of God, the gift that she has received by faith. She finds herself listed and identified among the heroes of the faith, kings of the nation of Israel and the Messiah himself. God's love doesn't just save us, God's love redefines us. We are redefined from God's enemy to his friend, from spiritual orphan to child of the king of the universe, from a wanderer in the wilderness to a citizen of God's kingdom. We are redefined by the love of God. That is the message of the gospel. And so we, like Rahab, can be redefined. The things that have marked us, the things that have hurt us, the things that we wear as labels, externally or internally, the things that weigh us down, they don't have to define us. Your sin does not need to define you. The sin that's been done against you has not, does not need to define you. Do not let anything but God define who you are. You are created in God's image. That means only God gets to define who you are. Sin does not get to define who you are. Brokenness does not get to define you who you are. Your addiction does not define who you are. Romans 8.1, this is such an important principle. And I come back to this again and again and again in my own life. And you should too. It's so simple. And yet it's so important for us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You cannot be defined by anything but God if you are in Christ Jesus. And that's what changes us. That's what forms us. Rahab is not saved and redeemed because she got her act together. She is not saved and redeemed because she started attending church and left and stopped sinning and stopped this and did this and did that. She is saved because she had faith. She is saved because she saw what God was doing and says, I don't fully understand, but I want to be a part of it. I'll I'll do something in response with this faith. She places her faith not in what she has done, but in what God is doing. That's why Advent matters. That's why this season matters. That's why Christmas matters. Because God isn't just doing something in the story of Rahab, in the story of Joshua, in the story of Jericho. God doesn't just do something in Abraham's life or in David's life or in the hero's life. He does something in every life. God has always, from the beginning of the story, been about the business of this, redefining people's lives, changing names, changing stories, prostitutes and tax collectors, sinners and Pharisees, liars and losers, the broken and the beat up, you and me. And why? Because he loves us. Because he loves us. First Timothy 1.15. Paul writes, it's a beautiful summary of what it's all about. It says, the saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
Christ Jesus came into the world. Why was Christ born? Why did Christ step in? Why has the light shone into the darkness? Why was the word of God made flesh to save sinners? Sinners who bear labels like prostitute, like addict, like liar, like failure. Sinners who bear things that they don't need to bear because God is redefining them. That is what Christmas is actually about. I love this poem from author Anne Voskamp. She says, God throws open the door of this world and he enters as a baby, as the most vulnerable imaginable because he wants unimaginable intimacy with you. What religion ever had a God that wanted such intimacy with us that he came with such vulnerability to us? What God ever came so tender that we could touch him, so fragile that we could break him, so vulnerable that his bare beating heart could be hurt? Only the one who loves you to death. At Advent, we remember and we realize that God is not far off, but that he has stepped in to the story. Not to judge us, not to shame us, not to tell us to get our act together, but rather to heal, to redeem, to save, and to change everything. Jesus did not come into the world to give us warm, fuzzy feelings. Jesus came on a rescue mission. Christmas is a rescue mission. It's not sentimentality. It's the greatest story of rescue that's ever been told. It's the author stepping into the book. It's the painter stepping into the art. It's God stepping in. Tim Keller describes it this way. There has never been a gift offered that makes you swallow your pride to the depths that the gift of Jesus requires us to do. Christmas means this, that we are so lost that we are so unable to save ourselves that nothing less than the death of the Son of God himself could save us. And it's that death, it's that sacrifice, it's that willingness of Jesus not only to be born, not only to step in, but to go to the cross in our place. It's that reality that will redefine us, that will change everything about our stories, that allows us to drop those other labels to drop the things that have defined us, whether by ourselves or by the words spoken by others, because Jesus has entered in, not only just as a baby, but in all eternity and in your life as the Holy Spirit to save you through his work on the cross. Here's how Peter described it. He himself bore our sins in his body and on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but now you have been returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Just like Rahab, we have been redeemed, not based on our understanding, not based on our works, but based on the grace and love of God. And so the invitation today is this. Whatever label you carry, whatever narrative is playing in your head, whatever lies you might believe, let them be laid down now and let the love of God redefine you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you redefine us. That who we are is built not on our works, not on our goodness, not on our righteousness, but on yours, Lord Jesus.
And so we lay ourselves before you now and we confess that we bring nothing, but we receive Lord Jesus, the gift of your mercy, the gift of your presence, the gift of your sacrifice. And we realize that it's all exactly that, a gift given to us in spite of the labels that we carry, the shame that we wear, the brokenness that we feel. And Lord Jesus, we invite you to move, to work, and to shape us, that we might be set free from our sin, that we might have strongholds torn down in our lives and the lives of those around us. We invite you, Lord Jesus, to move. We pray that this Christmas season, as we remember and look to you coming into the world, that we would know that you came for this purpose, to save sinners like Rahab and like us. So we thank you for your love for us. We ask you to move and work. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.